This week of shows on Software Engineering Daily focuses on O'Reilly's Fluent Conference, a yearly software conference that focuses on the web and the tools used to build modern applications. We're giving away a ticket to the Fluent Conference, which will be held March 8th through 10th in San Francisco. To be entered in a random drawing for this free ticket, send us a tweet about your favorite episode of Software Engineering Daily between now and February 22nd. More details about this are in the show notes. In today's show, I chatted with Peter Cooper and Simon St. Laurent, the organizers of the Fluent Conference, and I asked them about their thoughts on how the web is transitioning beyond the desktop and how they keep up with their ever-evolving JavaScript frameworks. This was also a unique chance to talk about why software conferences are important. Peter Cooper and Simon St. Laurent are the chairs of the O'Reilly Fluent Conference, which covers every major web technology and tool of the web stack, from JavaScript to UX design to Docker. Peter and Simon, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Hi. Roughly a year ago was Fluent 2015, and the web is moving so fast. Starting with Peter, what has changed in the last year? I think we've just seen even more fragmentation occur um, around different technologies. Um, it just continues to speed up. So we're actually now seeing uh, like ECMAScript 6, for example, has become a, a really big deal. And um, tools like, um, you know, you, that, that tr- translate ECMAScript 6 code back down to ECMAScript 6.5 code uh, so that, you know, developers can develop in new ways, but it will still work in existing browsers. Things like that have become a lot more popular um, we've only seen things like SAS and uh, similar tools become even more kind of you know, increasingly popular. So things have just continued to march on ahead. Um, it has been a really busy time. And, you know, since I sort of run newsletters in this space, it's been a real struggle to keep up, I must admit. Simon, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I think I think the same generally. The challenge is that to some extent we're getting into a framework fatigue. Uh, people are less enthusiastic about leaping on new things the 14th time in a row. Um, it's been interesting watching, for instance, some of the conversation around Angular and React. And a lot of people jumped from Angular to React with Angular 2 sounding like a big change. And now I sort of see people who are like, well, I moved to React. I'm not going to move back to Angular because that would be another change. And then I see other people who um, are very happy that Angular 2 is finally here because it's less of a change than jumping to React would have been the, to them. So mm. people are really uh, monitoring and sort of slowing down their rate of change on on this level um, at the end user, or not the end user, the developer level. But the people creating frameworks are still gleefully creating new stuff because obviously there's always better tools and more things you could do. So it's it's there's a there's a gap opening there, and uh, if we can help people figure out how to how to stay current without constant churn i think we'll have a lot of happy people sure well what's interesting is also the volume of people is increasing so fast uh that even if you know if you design a framework that has some long tail use case you'll find users who want to use it um like we we did a show about Vue.js. that's not exactly a long tail use case but uh the 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 mo of, of Vue.js is rapid prototyping which 
uh, arguably is not offered by Angular or React. So, uh, you know, it's found a large qual- quantity of people who are willing to adopt it. Um, so we've talked about what has changed in the last year. What are the aspects of web development that were true a year ago that are even more true today? Perhaps ones that are starting to feel timeless. Responsive. Responsive. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The mobile, the whole mobile thing has just become really significant. The, the arguments are still going on about the whole app versus kind of website thing. Uh, but it seems like, uh, it seems like people are starting to figure it out. Like, everyone's using both like no one is just using mobile apps and no one's just using the mobile web uh but we found we found that the web has now become so capable on mobile even with notifications you know facebook's really pushed ahead with using those um that just making sure you have responsive websites and sites that adapt to um the capabilities of a device rather than just saying is it running chrome or is it on ios um but actually saying you know has it got the web audio api or all mm. the different things that you need seems to become really important um, but it was still important a year ago, but just kind of more so now. Yeah, I think mm. it's become part of the foundations at this point. Um, I mean, it's kind of funny because in a lot of ways, the original web was responsive. If I open plain HTML on a phone, it all works fine. Um, and then we added all of these lovely features to make things look great, but we lost that responsive nature, and now we're actually back to valuing it. So in some sense, this is like the not even just a year. This is like a story over 20 years. Um, but I, I don't know. I've been in conversations where somebody said, you know, they were building this thing and it looked great on Android and it looked terrible on some other browser and, and what could the problem possibly be? And it wasn't, people were trying to be helpful, but they were also like, um, you forgot the foundation. You forgot this really basic thing you're supposed to do. Um, and so I think, I think at this point, responsive approaches have really become, solid expected default um mm. people aren't always well, maybe not them. in the design level um mm. it's penetrating there too um i mean i was just at a design conference i've been at an event apart um i think the question there is more how can we how can we make this work more effectively but you're seeing things like the death of photoshop comps um which makes me very happy because turning a psd into code never really made sense Mm. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, speaking of mobile, Software Engineering Daily has done some shows on React Native, which is this project out of Facebook that's trying to unify Android and iOS and web developers. And we've seen frameworks in the past that have tried to solve this fragmentation problem. Like, how do you, how do you create a framework that satisfies all the demands of Android, iOS, and web development? And the React Native approach is is kind of different than other things in the past because it essentially says, um, we're not going to try to boil the ocean and make one framework to rule them all. We're going to try to build, uh, a, a libra- build a set of libraries that allow our developers to work in more close conjunction with one another. What do you think of this, of this approach? What do you think of the React Native approach? I haven't actually gotten to play with it directly. So I have some limitations on that. Um, I built an app five years ago, which was all like HTML and then phone gap and then writing some objective C to fill the gaps. Um, everything I've heard from the people using react native is much happier than my experience was, uh, which is good because five years is a long time and things should be better. 
Um, it's it's been fun watching people. There's been a lot of back and forth between kind of the native app world and the web world, and how much can the web do, and how much can the native world do. And it seems like every time I turn around, there's a new API to support new native functionality. Um, you know, React Native seems like a better bridge for all of that in a lot of ways. Um, they know because they control the context, the kinds of things you're going to be doing. It's not completely wide open. Um, and the usability and the performance both seem to, to pick up a lot compared to what I was doing. Mm. What are the interfaces that are still lacking between mobile web browsers and the mobile operating systems. Like, you know, when I have uh, an app uh, on my mobile mobile device and I want it to interact with the web browser in a certain way, are, is there still some lacking uh, element of, of interfacing between the browser and the app system? I can't... Well, actually, yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple. I think probably the main one that just comes to me immediately is in terms of things like app stores and monetization. So you can easily create a web app and you can have people pay for it. Um, you'd have to rig up your whole own payment system and so on. Uh, but obviously app developers get this whole benefit of being in an app store, but the you know, downside is their apps have to be vetted and everything. Um, there doesn't seem to be a very easy way of connecting the two at the moment where perhaps you could lean on Apple's, uh, you know, or Google Play or whatever, you know, one of the stores and then have people pay for things that are in your web app instead, um, other than if you create a native app, whether it's a wrapper or not. Um, so I've not seen any APIs on that front, but it would surprise me if Google doesn't have a plan for that with the whole Google Pay thing and, you know, some of the stuff that's coming to Android. So um, that's one key one. But other than that, no, I think it's actually been a benefit that they've there's a little bit of detachment from the web. I know some people are very gung-ho on saying we should integrate all the way, but uh, I actually think the separation is, it needs to be there, this key distinction between what is an app and what are the rights that you're giving up by using those Mm. uh, versus what is available on the web and the freedom that there is there. Mm, The permission system. Um, Well, I mean, to be fair, the browsers do give you uh, a good access to that now. Um, And so another thing that seems to have improved recently is where... Um, mobile apps will interact with uh, websites or where you perhaps you'll click something in the browser on, uh, let's say, Chrome on an Android device, and it will load up the relevant apps, so like Instagram, for example, um, and some, you know, vice versa, of course. Um, all of that seems to have really improved uh, recently, um, not just Android, where that was actually quite strong all the time, uh, but I've heard it from iOS users saying, oh, the whole web app integration thing is so much better now than it used to be. Sure. So let's let's go back to talking about front end frameworks. Uh, uh, Simon, I think mentioned framework fatigue, and there are so many front end frameworks. But uh, given that we've seen so many, we seem to start to have some good data across the breadth of the category. What makes a good front end framework? Um, I think. It's actually quite a tricky question, actually, because I think the reason we have so many front-end frameworks is because everyone has a totally different answer to that question. Um, So, like, Ember, for example, has this radically different approach to Angular. Even though you can build similar apps between the two, um, Ember is perhaps a bit more opinionated, um, a bit more structured in many ways. Um, You know, they have tools literally to kind of start a whole project and kind of tie it together. Perhaps more like a 
a Rails-esque fashion, um, whereas Angular is more like, here's some bits and pieces, you kind of put them together how you see fit. Um, I don't I don't think there is a general answer to that question, at least from my point of view. Maybe Simon will disagree, but uh, I think that's why there are so many frameworks. Everyone disagrees. Yeah, I was jumping up and down with yes, yes, yes when you said there isn't really an answer. Um, I, I know people who've tried out Backbone, Ember, Angular, React, and are still happier with jQuery and their own stuff. I know people who are... I do uh, that. Yeah. And I know people who, who don't like jQuery, but basically insist on creating everything from scratch every time to, to custom fit their application to what they want to do rather than relying on a framework. So my sense is that the frameworks, you know, they do real work. They make our lives easier when they fit the problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no... We're all solving different problems in really radically yeah. different ways. I mean, it's like saying, is there is there a programming language you should use? And like, even in a single space, like web development, you know, you could easily put something together in Python, Java, JavaScript, uh, Ruby, and so on. No, um, no, everyone should use. We're it not going to just, yeah, or PHP. I mean, I can't even. I even forgot that. But uh, yeah, there is so yeah. many options. But I don't think there needs to be kind of an ideal option. Almost. Mm. Uh, I mean, some things do get idealized like uh, Ruby and Rails were for quite some time. But now that's become more mature and people are kind of weighing it up in a more sane way. I think we're seeing the same occurring with some of these frameworks. Some of the more established, entrenched ones, they're not really going to go away. Angular's not going anywhere. Ember's not going anywhere. React's not going anywhere. Um, So we're going to keep seeing people trying to throw their ideas into the pot, uh, but we will stick with these core kind of group um, that, you know, if they ever do die, it will be very, very slowly. Um, so Backbone is perhaps an example of that, still heavily used. Um, but you don't see quite the hype about it anymore. Um, but it's because there's so many projects still using it. It's not mm. going to die out. Yeah, right. Backbone is funny to me because it's the one, the people who I've talked to who tend to be JavaScript purists are still like, well, if you want to use Backbone, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, well... Uh, Peter mentioned Rails. I think, uh, although Rails seems to have, uh, you know, fallen out of the the, the biggest size of the limelight, um, there was a time where Ruby on Rails was was revered, uh, and and I think uh, there is there is a, a set of things to take away from that for from why Rails was so massively popular. Um, certainly, one thing that I hear people say when they come on the show to talk about Rails is the desirability of the polyglot uh, uh, foundation of Ruby on Rails. You know, you're not just programming in JavaScript. Um, you're, you're doing multiple languages, which is seen by, by Rails purists as a feature and not a bug. Um, among the programmers that you guys talk to, is there a majority preference for having a framework where only one language is allowed or do people like to use multiple languages in their frameworks? Wow. It, it varies by where I go. Um, so when I was at JSConf, I think pretty obviously everybody was like, JavaScript is awesome and Node is great. And we can use JavaScript to solve all the problems of the world. Um, but even there, I was talking to Python programmers and found some PHP. Um, I... <sighs> You know, I, th- I think there's a certain comfort level to staying in the same language. Um, there's no question that a lot of the reason that Node is taking is is taking such deep root is that so many people know JavaScript and are like, hey, I can use this for something else without having to learn a whole new language. 
Um, I'm really kind of amazed by the amount of like hardware stuff that's Raspberry Pis with Node running on it. Um, so there clearly is an interest in you know staying in the same language, being able to move code back and forth. Um, all that familiarity is great. But then when I talk to people who are you know deep into particular problems that require specific uh, architectures, I you know or integration with something in the past. Um, you know, that's where I get really excited about things like Elixir and Erlang or where people who are dealing with legacies are still incredibly excited about Java. You know, it, it, it really depends on what you're trying to solve, whether the, the one language overall or the, the polyglot approach is going to, going to help you more. I think it's mm. awful myself. Just, I mean, just if I interject my personal opinion <sighs> rather than who I talk to, I just, I'm very much against the whole isomorphic kind of shoehorn one language into every single situation scenario I just yeah do not like it at all hmm why not what's what's the problem with using javascript on the back end it's not so much whether you use javascript on the back end or not um obviously when i said isomorphic then I, people may kind of infer from that i'm talking specifically about isomorphic javascript which isn't really the case um, what I'm more referring to is perhaps where people come up with these systems for perhaps creating style sheets using JavaScript. Um, and they think, well, you know, I can still write everything in JavaScript. And then perhaps I can write um, HTML, do some templating, and it's kind of like this weird morphed up version of JavaScript, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, we had this in the Ruby world. Um, so I guess I should disclose I'm sort of originally from the Ruby world. Um, we had these different ways of you could write JavaScript in Ruby. So um, something called RJS, which from a Rails app, let you perform JavaScript features, like you know, do things in the browser, but you'd write it in Ruby first. So you could stick with the same language. And it just bombed. It just died. Uh, they don't you know, really support that now. It's not a feature. Um, I just really hate this idea of shoehorning languages into things where they're not kind of really welcome i think that's the reason new languages come along and new ways of representing things come along like css and xml i know it could be a sore point with uh, simon possibly but different data formats come along and json and so on because they have a reason to exist it's not just someone thought well let's create a new format for the fun of it uh, they do have different benefits um you know we don't create technologies and chipsets and different standards just for the fun of it um and it may look like we do but they have their own pros and cons. So I actually like leaning into that and uh, really making use of it. Um, and different languages too. So it brings us back to the polyglot thing. Uh, you know, if a, if a service on the back end, it makes sense to write it in, say, Erlang, for example, it has to be you know super scalable. That's great. We'll use it. Um, we don't have to think, well, how can we get this into Node? How can we make Node be super scalable? Like, just move between the technologies. I think anyone's capable of doing that if they're, uh, you know, the engineer that they like to claim they are. <laughs> okay, so over the past year or two, we've seen the rise of React. And um, I think this is uh, one of the modern technologies that is uh, growing at a pace that um, is reminiscent of the pace at which Rails grew back in the day, maybe back in 2005, 2006. What is exciting about React? Why, why are people getting, um, getting so interested in it? I think there are a couple of things going on. One is I think it very consciously took a step back from the 
we must fulfill all pieces of the model view controller or whatever MVC variation you want. And it really focused on the view. Yeah. Um, it, it, it tries to solve, <laughs> honestly, the DOM has never been anyone's favorite API. Uh, it, it takes a look at problems we've had forever and in, in solving them came up with a new mode of, of building things. I think React also plays really strongly in a way that kind of reminds me of Ember uh, to programmer expectations rather than kind of the web expectations that came out of the, the previous world of, of sites, um, which makes React a lot more comfortable for people who really want to think in terms of JavaScript, who want, you know, like there's a lot of controversy building around the use of inline styles and JSX. Um, it makes sense for programmers, but people who've maintained web stuff for a long time tend to freak out when they see it. Um, it, you know, it really optimized for a particular very large group of people uh, while removing obstacles that had, I don't know, involved massive bottles of aspirin for a long time. <laughs> uh, Peter, do you have any thoughts? Um, I think it really helps that JSX looks like what people were used to before. Like It's really easy to learn, and I think that's important. I've seen this come from people that have struggled with Angular, and they're like, oh, I don't quite understand all these directives, and they use all sorts of complicated language in the documentation for Angular. And I know this is, this is a common uh, problem that you know people have put to them, and they, they really have improved things. Um, but, yeah, React just is one of those things that look, it's a lot easier to get up and running with it. You can use it in... This sound a bit, might sound a bit weird, but you can kind of use it in the wrong way. Uh, so you can take your existing way of programming. You don't have to necessarily change the way you approach a problem to say, I'm going to put some React in, and I'm going to use this for a certain piece of it to add that reactive feature. Uh, you don't have to think how to re-architect your application from scratch to use it. Mm -hmm. um, and in that regard, it's, it's very similar to something like a jQuery where uh, you know jQuery just helps you do what you were trying to do in the first place. You can use React in a very simple, in a similar way, and I think that is very appealing to developers, and is one of the reasons why the ecosystem can build so quickly. Because it's not like I don't have to sit down with a giant book and go, "Oh, you know, how to use the React framework from scratch and build this whole app before I can understand it." It's I can just look at the React and go, "Oh, yeah, I can copy and paste some source code, figure out what it does, mess about, and kind of get something working." And I think any system that lets you do that is going to inherently take off a little bit quicker, have a slightly quicker ecosystem, um, and people will be more involved. I don't know whether they were deliberate with that intent, but it just seems to me that you know, that's probably why it's taken off so quicker. You can be a bit more hackish with it. Yeah, well, it, it feels like the React learning curve is more like the jQuery learning curve was than like yeah. the Angular curve is. Yeah, easy wins. You know, that's so interesting because um, from where I sit, it seems to me that... Uh, the it, so it is very decoupled in the sense that the different components you can you can use as much React as you want, um, and it is taking off in a lot of popularity in that vein. But one aspect that's kind of undercutting it is, in contrast to Ruby on Rails, there's no React uh, CLI where you just like React new app, you know, like give me the hello world of React. Um, and and I think it's kind of inevitable that that there's going to be something like that in the future. And I think that's where where we're really just going to see like a hockey stick of uh, of React uh, React type applications. 
Um, you know, was, when, there, was when, there a jQuery CLI? That okay, fair enough. Yeah. But I mean, there's the console in some ways too. I mean, I, I I could see something that was a more dedicated command line interface making things exciting, but I think there actually are enough pieces now that it would be less of a hockey stick and more of a oh okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I could be wrong. You know, when we hear about React, we hear a lot about functional programming and some other stuff. How is React emblematic of the ways that developer preferences are changing? That's a very... Um, I can't quite get my brain around that question entirely. How developers' preferences are changing in terms of development? Um, well, I guess the, the one thing that jumps to mind is the immediate, and hopefully I haven't gone off track here, but is the immediate reaction of a page to user input. Um, so the fact that pages are more real-time now. Uh, we're seeing this with all sorts of frameworks, uh, You know, even like I keep mentioning Rails, uh, where people want to have this direct connection between the data that's stored in the system and what appears on a site. So no longer do you go to a site, the page is rendered, Nothing really happens until you take an action. Uh, we now have things that update, multi-user, you know, everything's push here and there. Um, if there's any preference, I would say it's for that. People want that kind of almost mobile app style experience, uh, mm. but all over the place, whether it's on a web page, right. in a program, whatever. Um, yeah. And React gives that to people in that you can tie it up um, to either polling or WebSockets or whatever you want to do, um, GraphQL, that type of system. Um, and mm. get that live interactivity. I think that is something that developers have craved, clients have craved, quite importantly, um, and now developers can give it to them using these systems. Mm. So granted that we're talking about Facebook technology, um, this question isn't closely related to software engineering, but uh, it's more further looking out. When, when you look at Facebook and you think about the fact that there's a generation of the world that thinks that Facebook is the actual internet. Like there are those people in India who get Facebook as their first means to the internet. And they think that actually Facebook is, is the web. It's the internet. Um, do you think that Facebook will be like a secondary platform that has the scale of the browser in the future? No, no, I don't I, think so. I mean, no, you could, I think, you could, go ahead, Peter. Oh, I was just going to say, I think they've they already tried that with um, Facebook apps, for example. Now, I don't know how heavily you use Facebook, but there was a point where Facebook apps were absolutely huge. And there was like Farmville and all kinds of stuff going on. But now Facebook I don't, more seems to be linking out to other experiences and things that are happening elsewhere on the web. I would say Facebook's actually become more sucked into the web way of thinking than in terms of having their own platform and ecosystem and kind of taking over the the internet if you will um and i think a lot of that has come down to the just kind of the increased popularity of accessing facebook on mobile devices so i work with a lot of people in their early 20s and um i talk about facebook and they never use it in the browser they're always using it um on their phone whether it's through the app or the mobile web version uh and you just can't give that kind of whole platform experience uh, in a single app or whatever on a phone. So it's increasingly now becoming for them about things like Instagram and Snapchat and uh, Vine and you know even Twitter as well. Uh, it, it, we seem to have entered this kind of polyglot social kind of 
period that mm-hmm. I don't think Facebook is necessarily the winner anymore. They're having to stay relevant by pointing out all these other things because that's where people are going anyway. Hmm. And they they seem to be doing a better job of balancing that challenge than say AOL did. Um, mm. I think they've they've learned from uh, that. But the last yes. time I had this conversation, it was AOL, and there were a lot of people who thought AOL was the internet, and um, that that faded as the number of CDs in our uh, mailboxes <laughs> faded. Um, I I think there's still like uh, some small percentage of of the United States that their internet access is all dial up through AOL. I remember seeing a stat oh, it's still, recently. It's still there and I still have an AOL account. <laughs> um, you know, it, but Facebook has been maybe a little more modest in its ambitions. Um, I think it's, it's learned from that as far as like the, you need to connect, but connecting out is going to change the way you do things. And AOL just felt very brittle. You could go out, but mm. you were like leaving. Facebook has been more, uh, still controlling, but more willing to integrate, I guess, in a way. So Fluent is a conference about, quote, the web platform. And, uh, you know, since we're coming off a conversation about Facebook, you know, I think of Facebook as maybe a web platform. But what what is the difference between the web platform and the Internet? Well, when we started using the term web platform, it was it had come up to kind of cover the whole set of client-side technologies, the HTML5, CSS3, the new work in JavaScript, um, all those APIs. Um, it's an awkward term for a lot of reasons. Um, among other things, the that platform doesn't behave the way that people expect, like the .NET platform or Java platforms to work. Um, so if you think of it more broadly than that, you know, the web... The web as the core set of technologies and assumptions you're going to work with, I think that's a, a better description of what we're actually covering. Um, it is still mostly from a developer's perspective. It is still kind of the – we're creating things with this particular architecture and tool set in mind. Um, but it is pretty different from you know the classic developer perspective on here's my platform. Mm. Yeah, very fragmented. Right. So, okay, we've talked a lot about the front end, and I want to talk some about the changes on the back end that are driving the the changes to the front end um, across the web platform. Um, what are the changes, what are the technologies that are more back end-ish that are... Uh, changing the way that we think about front-end development. I'm not seeing a huge influence, to be honest, and maybe Simon's going to correct me on this. Um, we are seeing you know, a lot of increase in performance on the back-end and perhaps some of the models that developers are using. So, for example, uh, Go has become a very popular way to build um, back-end services. Uh, Node has as well, and that sort of has its own ways of scaling. And uh, also Erlang and Erlang-based um, things such as Elixir, which is a Ruby-like language um, based on the Erlang VM, um, is adding more concurrency and more scalability behind the scenes. But I still feel that people are reasonably loosely coupled between the front end and the back end, other than perhaps where they're trying to do isomorphic React stuff or whatever. Uh, unless you go wholesale down that route, I'm not seeing the huge connection, but maybe Simon can... Be a bit more broad on that. I think, Peter, you're actually right for most people. I think there are corners where, 
Well, on the one hand, the isomorphic thing is is really popular with a certain category of people trying to create applications that respond well in whatever bandwidth or processing circumstances they have. So, so mm. that's an architecture story. The other thing that I'm seeing happen is it seems like logic, a lot of logic has moved from the server side to the client side. Um, this has been going on basically since we realized that Ajax was possible. But lately, I'm seeing things like really minimalist server-side data stores that where all of the logic really lives on the client. Um, Parse is one of these. Um, There are a lot of things where basically you have some kind of authentication system set up on the server and you have storage set up on the server, but otherwise the rest of the logic is migrating to the client. Um, I have really mixed feelings about this. Um, the experiments I've seen so far have been pretty lightweight and I'm eager to see something more, uh, more thoroughly built out. Um, Hmm. I think in some ways it's a response to the, you know, massive concurrency and scaling across. Like if you, if you're running stuff across a million instances of AWS, um, the, the one place you can really centralize your logic is in the client's browser. So that gives you the opportunity to, to make those connections without constraining yourself um, mm. on the server side. But that's really still a, a pretty minority uh, project. So Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, what I was thinking about in terms of the back end, um, you know, we've, we've done several shows about this move on the back end towards architectures that can update data more aggressively. Like you have a, an update that comes in, and the database gets updated, and then the the front end gets updated uh, in more quote real time. Um, and I, I suppose we've already touched on this with with React. I think uh, Peter referred uh, referred to that that it change in uh, developer preferences to being able to receive those those fresher real time updates. Um, uh, but also in terms of other technologies on the quote back end that are changing things why is docker important to the web platform oh wow we're taking a 90 degree turn now <laughs> it's good well yeah actually it's funny because i was just about to say that i think it's the front end demands have driven what happens on the back end more recently than the mm, other way around fascinating but yeah, now you mentioned Docker, so now we kind of go into this whole different world of uh, deployment and so on. It does feel to me that in some ways that the people that were most interested in the back end and like they were like, you know, I never want to go near JavaScript, never want to go near HTML, you know, I just want to work on really cool back end systems, have moved a little bit more down the kind of path towards operations. Um, because that seems to be where the exciting stuff is happening at the moment in terms of performance. Because um, there is just so much to be done with uh, increasing the performance of your backend operations and uh, working with cloud systems and so on and so forth. And instrumental in that um, has been Docker, which just provides you a, an easier way to maintain and bring together backend services in a very predictable fashion. You can, you can work with them in a more logical fashion than just 
SSHing into a server and praying that you can install Apache <laughs> correctly, uh, which is kind of the the old school way of doing it. You can now produce all of these things um, even in a development environment, and then just push them up to a development, uh, push them up to a production environment, and they will just work. Trademark. Um, so I think <laughs> Docker has been very important. Has been a very important technology to increase the predictability and testability of. Uh, the back end, not just on single servers, but across entire clouds. And I think that was something we really did lack. Um, of course, people were using VMs and things like that, but they were just too heavyweight. Um, Docker has really helped with that a ton. Hmm. Yeah, and it used to be a, a deeper split between the people developing the applications and the people deploying the applications. Um, at this point, you know, the people who are building web apps are starting to need to know about Docker because they aren't necessarily handing off their stuff to somebody else to put in production. It's them. So mm. these boundaries are shifting pretty quickly. Yeah, and, you know, we, we often hear Docker associated with the DevOps movement. Um, and the DevOps movement is all about this uh, increasingly harmonious relationship between development and operations and breaking down these walls of confusion uh, you know, as I've been looking over the material for the Fluent conference, I think about a different wall of confusion, which is the wall between designers and the rest of the world, perhaps designers and developers. Uh, Simon, you spend a lot of time with designers. So I'm curious what your perspective on this is. How are the relationships between design teams and the rest of the teams changing? Well, they're still pretty fraught. Um, they're better. I mean, my early days on the web were basically spent explaining to designers why the things they could do in Quark Express were not necessarily the things they could do in Netscape 1.0. Um, we've gotten way past that. A lot of the designers I talk to, you know, they get this whole responsive mobile, um, designing things that are going to be flexible rather than pixel set, that kind of stuff. But there's a huge difference in the way that designers approach problem solving and the way that developers approach problem solving. Um, I, if I oversimplify it, it tends to be that the designers are focusing on the human aspects and the developers are focusing on the computer aspects. Um, the reality is a lot more blended, but that still tends to be the way it is. Um, I was just at the O'Reilly Design Conference last week, and one of the interesting things there was a conversation about how design and development are still out of whack. You you don't need as many designers as you need developers, but we have a lot of cases where developers are doing things at a rate faster than designers can keep up, where companies really haven't brought in enough designers to make sure that, that they can keep up. Um, partly, I think they assume that like, a lot of companies seem to assume that having one designer like set the plans will take care of everything magically. Um, the reality is that it's a lot more iterative. You try things, they don't work. Um, if you have somebody there to really think it through how best to make this work to humans, you can fix things a lot more effectively in that context than if it's just developers doing that iteration. Hmm. There's been more conversation about developers who are also designers. Um, what I tend to find is that works to a point. Um, I'm always encouraging developers to learn the design vocabulary because it makes it so much easier to work together. Um, and develop designers are also 
I'm hearing from a lot more designers who are working on learning programming and learning how these that side of it works. But I, I'm sure there are people out there who are brilliant designers and brilliant programmers. But having both those skills in one person is such an unusual occurrence at 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 a really high level that you know for me most of the effort is on bridging the gaps between two groups of people uh, rather than hoping that we can you know, magically create people who do both really, really well. The unicorns. Yeah, there are unicorns, but they, they, I don't know, not nearly enough of them, right? Right. So I, I want to talk about Fluent. Um, and since we're talking about the intersections of design and development, I think that's a great place to start. Um, I guess, beginning with Peter, what are your goals with the Fluent Conference? Um, I want to become rich and famous, mostly, but uh, I don't think that's the official answer. Um, No, uh, joking aside, what we're trying to really do um, is we're trying to provide basically a forum for people that are from across the entire web platform. So we want people, you know, who are designers, people who are programmers, people who are doing a bit of back end. Um, people who work within corporations and perhaps don't know exactly what it is that they do because we actually do meet people like that. They kind of work within a large corporation, but they don't have a huge amount of exposure to perhaps some of the terminology that we would use kind of in the uh, the community, as it were. Uh, so not a lot of community engagement. Um, we want to bring together all of those people, um, you know, lots of great speakers, and we just want everyone to really share Uh, their knowledge with each other and that's not just speakers kind of one-to-many broadcasting out but it's actually all the small discussions that take place so we make sure there's you know social sessions we have meetups and things like that um, just so that people can learn what there is out there uh, and then feel inspired to kind of go back to you know where where they're kind of working um, and really inject a lot of that magic in because it's very easy to run an event where you have people just literally just teaching you um, what you could learn from a book or a video or whatever. Mm. What we need to provide is we need to provide that experience so that people can actually make a transformation from where it is they are now, where they are now to where they actually want to be. Um, and while you can make transformations with books and videos, events are just they just provide such a raw way of doing that. Um, so we just want to kind of, you know, shock people into making these transformations. Um, we hopefully do, sort of do that by the, the caliber of the speakers and the caliber of the events that uh, we put on. And Simon, what are, what are your goals with the Fluent Conference? Um, I think it's a lot of what Peter said. For me, it's, it's that the web has become so vast a conversation. Um, there was a time when it was possible for people, even if they weren't unicorns, to keep up with all of the different parts that were going on. Um, at this point, it's an incredible uh, flow of ideas and things that change. And by the time you caught up to this framework, it was already over. And um, you know, Peter definitely has his finger in it with the newsletters, just information flying by. But if we could pause for a couple of days, put people in the same space, uh, a lot of the conversations that kind of fail on Twitter and email work much better in person. Mm. Not just listening to the speaker, but sharing that experience with other people. You could then talk, talk with at lunch about, you know, what you just learned and whether you heard the same thing. 
that tends to bring together. We learn better when we, you know, are together in, in talking about it. Um, as much as I love books, I've written many of them in video as ways of learning. Doing it together makes all of the conversations more fruitful, um, even when the fights break out, which isn't very often. <laughs> so, given that you are the chairs of the Fluent Conference, how do you decide who can and will present at the conference? And what are, what are the characteristics of a good conference talk? Luckily, it's not just us. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> I'll just outline the whole process just so people understand, because not everyone's going to have experiences with conferences, either running or submitting um, you know, proposals to them. But essentially what we do about six months prior to the conference, and I wish it was a little bit sooner than that because technology's changed, but about six months out, we kind of say what the vague topics are we want to cover. So we'll say things like, oh, React's big at the moment or Angular's big at the moment, or we want to look at perhaps where things are going with the mobile web. Um then we'll put up this thing called a CFP, which is a call for proposals. And people that are then interested will learn about this uh, through all sorts of different ways. Um, and they will go onto the site and they'll say, I want to talk about this, this and this. Um, and kind of make a appealing a, a sort of a, a proposal as possible. What then happens after a couple of months, we close that call for proposals. We also get in touch with um, people that perhaps you know, haven't submitted and that we want to uh, you know, really invite to come and speak or at least invite to make a kind of a, a proposal behind the scenes. So we'll make sure we've got all these proposals in. And then we basically have this group of people called the Program Committee, which is a group of about say about 20 people this year, I think. Yep. Um, we'll all go to the talks and not everyone will review every single talk. Um, I think I did about half... Um, you know, Simon's done lots, uh, and then there's several um, of our committee members who have done absolute turn. Um, but then we'll have a few committee members that will just focus on their specialist areas. So let's say we have someone who's really into WebGL, they'll go and look at the WebGL talks and provide the kind of a more expert opinion on, oh, yeah, this speaker's good, or, oh, no, this is a bit of a weak topic, we shouldn't cover this. Um, we'll all give them a score, I think. Um, yeah, it's between kind of one and five. And then this makes it sound really simple, but after we've done all of those reviews, Simon and I will sit down, we'll order proposals in order from, um, you know, average score from five downwards. And we'll go, that looks like a good talk. That fits into our story. That looks like a good talk, fits into our story. Um, and we'll approve about half of the program that way. Um, the rest of the, the proposals, we will tend to take a more measured look because sometimes, you know, the committee gets it wrong or we get it wrong. Um, and we need to kind of reflect on things. So half the talks take a lot longer to do. Um, and some of our people that propose are a little bit annoyed about that because we accept, you know, a whole bunch of talks really quickly, but then the others might take us a month or so to sort of really go through. Um, and that's the main process. Um, and in terms of, you know, what we're looking for, we do have tracks at our conference. These are more just kind of like vague topics that we want to cover, like um, this year in particular, we wanted to have more hardware talks. So we were actively looking for talks about, you know, the Internet of Things or perhaps doing robot programming in JavaScript. So we will actively look through for those topics. Um, but beyond that, you know, what we're looking for in a proposal is just a really a solid title. It doesn't have to be too kind of buzzfeedy or kind of, uh, you know, clickbait style title or anything. But it has to really describe what the talk is going to cover in a very clear way. 
Um, and then the same goes for the main part of their abstract as well. Even if it's just two paragraphs, as long as it's they've demonstrated they know what they want to communicate, what kind of uh, transformations they want to make in the visitors to the conference. You know, we want to take people from knowing nothing about hardware to making their own robot, let's say. If we can see what that story is and they put it in a really good way, they will tend to get accepted if we've got the room. So, yeah, I don't know if someone wants to add anything to that. It's kind of a yeah, I mean, you know, whirlwind tour. Yeah, the core of it is, you know, will, is this a, a description that will draw in the audience? Uh, can they look at the title? Can they look at the description and say, this is for me? Or actually kind of just as important, can they look at it and say, that's not my session? Um, the, the best way to get a badly reviewed session is to have a vague proposal that draws in a lot of people who don't actually get what they want. Um, <laughs> so, so focus is really excellent. Um, giving people a sense of what they'll get out of it is really key. Um, it helps if you're a great speaker and have lots of experience on it. But um, if we have a great speaker give a talk on stuff that people aren't excited about, it's not going to work either. So it, it really is kind of a balancing act between all of those things. How will you guys know if Fluent 2016 is a success? We'll probably really know in about five years. Um you know what I what I listen for is the the conversation, sort of during and afterwards. Um, mm. You know some of my some of my happiest conversations have been with people who got their start speaking at Fluent and have gone on to do bigger and greater things. Uh, I've also had conversations. I've had one conversation with someone who went to Fluent and decided that web development was really not for them. Um, and they went off and they really yes yes well this was we were that sounds traumatic we well no it, it's good because we were we were talking earlier about Peter was saying people who've been on the server side you know a lot of them have moved into operations and you know for this person there was just enough stuff there to, to lead them that direction and they've been very happy since ah. so it was actually a weird thank you conversation um, you know most of the time we're not going to hear from people uh, we just kind of hope the web keeps getting better. Uh, you know, if we can, if we hear echoes of fluent conversations, even if they aren't really about fluent, we figure we we're pointing the right direction. Um, it really is about building, uh, building a conversation that welcomes a lot of people and helps them to improve the web. Hmm. Well, that seems like a great place to close off. Um, Peter and Simon, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, I'm looking forward to attending the Fluent 2016 conference, and I will be there with uh, hopefully t-shirts for the both of you. Great. Yes, that sounds good. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>